Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Dr. Reese Davies, who is a consultant neurologist uh, with a specialty interest in cognitive neurology. Hi, Reese. Morning. Hi, hi John. Uh, thanks for joining us again today. And today's podcast, we're going to be talking about how you approach the cognitive examination in clinical practice. Perhaps to begin with, it might be worth just explaining to the students uh, when you consider undertaking cognitive examination. In very simple terms, uh, you'd want to do a cognitive examination to look for specific evidence of a cognitive syndrome. So a cognitive syndrome like delirium, like dementia of one form or another, or any specific cognitive uh, defect, cognitive deficit or impairment. And, and in general, when you want to contrast any of those with that broad grouping that might be referred to as functional cognitive disorder. Uh, so that's, that's when you do it. But, um, in real life, the, the process of, of getting there, I think, is that um, it's, it's very important that you consider it as part of your wider practice and your wider observation of, of the patient. And so, you know, you would be triggered to do a cognitive examination based on what you've learned in the history and what you've observed in general from being one of that patient's doctors or the, the doctor for that patient. Uh, and, it, and it's really useful, I think, to, to come up with the term collateral, so co collateral information here. Um, and probably uh, in general terms, the most important source of collateral information is, is those people who are close to the patient. So people who are living with a the patient, uh, their close friends, who've known them maybe for a long time. Um, but of course, collateral information can come from other members of the clinical team uh, there on site in, in the moment, and also um, from the documents that other clinicians have written. So, uh, so from my point of view as a consultant, the referral letter um, and uh, comments from, from other, other clinicians outside the team. So that, that general observation and the regard for collateral information is really important. And um, what constitutes a cognitive examination? Hey, um, I, I think it's probably best to come up with an analogy with the general neurological examination. Uh, so people are a little bit more comfortable, I think, with the general physical neurological examination than, than with the cognitive examination. But they may not be that comfortable with the physical neurological examination compared to say listening to the chest uh, or something like that. Um, so, so certainly that fearfulness that uh, young clinicians have in relation to the physical neurological examination is often more evident even in terms of the cognitive examination. Uh, and then the flip side of that fear I think is the point about perceptual learning. So the more you get over your fear, uh, the more you um, observe and 
you hone your skills of perception, the more rewarding it becomes. It's a bit like drinking beer, uh, you know, so your first sip of beer, uh, you just, you know, wonder what all the fuss was about. Uh, and, and then the, the perhaps, of course, I, I have very little experience, but uh, the, 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 the more you do it, the more you appreciate and the more you get out of it. Um, so, so those are very general points, and, but th there are some very specific things um, that, that are analogous. So, so I think the first thing is the importance of having a routine. So when we're doing chest examination, abdominal examination, we've got a routine. When we're, when we're examining the motor function of the limbs, we've got a routine. When we do cognitive examination, we've got to have a routine, and there's a good handful of these out there, aren't there? Uh, and also, in addition to having the routine, you've got to have some uh, possibility of improvising. So, so that's kind of doing some things in addition to the routine of the examination uh, that harks back to your general observations of that patient. So having the routine and having some ability to improvise, that's really important. And then uh, the other thing is localizing the lesion. So. The, the, the where question of the neurological examination, the fact that it's the examination that is most uh, directly to do with neuroanatomy, um, the, the key act that uh, a mature clinician is involved with when you do a neurological examination is trying to work out where in the nervous system the trouble is located. Uh, and that's the same in the cognitive examination as in the physical examination. Um, but of course, um, the, the, the individual deficits and impairments of the cognitive examination are a little bit further away from the front line of the nervous system. So a fundamental neurological function like vision or movement, um, it's easier to localize those in, mm -hmm. a, in a certain way um, because you're only one or two synapses from the actual behavior uh, or the actual stimulus. Uh, whereas with the cognitive examination, in addition to having this idea about localization, you've got to be aware of how far you are from, from that site within the nervous system in terms of uh, the concept, but also in terms of the number of synapses. Uh, and so there are some cognitive functions like kind of wakefulness maybe, or, or even concentration that are pretty basic, whereas there are other cognitive examinations, examination findings that are much more dependent, and you've got to be especially careful when you interpret the localization aspects with those features. Okay, so I guess uh, from your perspective, you're, you're hinting at alertness and awareness there, so that would be a fundamental uh, aspect to when assessing, and, and you, yeah. wouldn't, you wouldn't therefore push on and test more uh, do more detailed testing if the person wasn't even alert or aware. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, that's right. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't test for bradykinesia in a limb that was paralysed, mm -hmm. and you can't test for uh, um, associative gnosis. So you can't test for the absence of an associative agnosia in someone who's in coma. So yeah. so you have to have that sort of common sense uh, aspect, but but also you know the connoisseurship that, that you can't proceed with those more elaborate tests when the basic functions are absent. Okay. And so you've hinted there at uh, testing of various cognitive uh, domains. 
are you able just to tell us a little bit more detail about what the various cognitive domains that you test for are? Okay, so um, <clears throat> I think it's helpful to divide cognitive domains into those that are pretty uh, clearly localised within the nervous system and those that are more distributive. So if we start with, with uh, the latter, that a little bit more complicated in, in, in a way. So I, I would say that there are two cognitive domains that are characteristically distributed. The easier of the two to understand is, is memory for events. So episodic memory, and this is an important one because it's the domain of cognition that is particularly impaired in, in Alzheimer's disease and, and other non-neurodegenerative disease of the medial temporal lobe. And the point about episodic memory is that there's a circuit in perhaps oversimplified terms, but nonetheless, a circuit of structures that are located around the inner limit of the cerebral hemisphere. Uh, this is referred to as the limbic circuit or the limbic lobe. And that circuit, uh, it sort of has a, has a sort of uh, a double loop as a circuit. So you've got the hippocampus, and it's output in, in the fornix, going towards the mammillary body in the hypothalamus, then the mammillothalamic tract from the thalamus back to the uh, cingulate gyrus above the corpus callosum, and then the cingulate bundle going back to the parahippocampal gyrus. Mm -hmm. so, so that circuit, that, that sort of double loop circuit in the inner limit of the cerebral hemisphere, that has a key function in memory for events, episodic memory. And wherever in that circuit the lesion happens, the impairment is pretty much the same. So if I've had um, acute thiamine deficiency and I've therefore got irreversible damage to the mammillary body in Korsakoff's psychosis, mm -hmm. then that gives me an, an amnesia, a failure to remember events, that is not that dissimilar to having Alzheimer's disease because of neurodegenerative change in the medial temporal lobe or um, herpes simplex infection affecting the medial temporal lobe. Mm -hmm. so, so the same syndrome wherever in the circuit the lesion is located. Yep. The other distributed uh, function is um, that, that sort of spectrum between consciousness and concentration. Uh, a spectrum, if you like, between arousal alertness on the one hand and attention at the other. So, so this is a, a, a range of functions and this is a very complex area and, and, and perhaps it's worth doing um, a flat earth analysis here. Okay, so, so my contention is that the globe, the earth, is more or less spherical and in that frame of mind, the, um, the functions of uh, alertness and attention localize to the upper brainstem, so, so the midbrain and the nearby diencephalon, and their connections with frontal lobe structures, prefrontal structures as we call them, uh, and the globus pallidus structures involved with cognition, so particularly the, the chordate nucleus and, and the, the nucleus accumbens. So that circuit of frontal striatal thalamic connections is crucial to this range of functions. 
Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the, the flat earth analogy is, is about saying that, of course, it's more complicated than that. I know that an astronomer or a geologist will tell me actually that the earth isn't spherical at all, and you've got to be mad to uh, say that it is a precise sphere. Um, but, you know, it's not quite as mad to say that the earth is a sphere as it is to insist having read um, injudiciously published material on the internet saying that the world is actually flat. So, so just being aware of having some concept of what you know, yeah. knowing as a clinician that we're not card-carrying uh, academic neuroscientists, but not being terrified of, of using the basic knowledge that, that we have. So those are the two distributed circuits. So attention, arousal, that circuit between the cortex and key subcortical structures, and then the limbic, um, uh, the limbic uh, lobe involved with episodic memory. Without wanting to overcomplicate it then, so when people talk about uh, inattention as being something that can happen after, say, a stroke, you're using the word attention in a very different sense. I am, I am. So that's, that's a really neat segue, John. So, um, so I'm talking about general attention here rather than visuospatial attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as you implied in your question there, uh, the word inattention um, is, um, is used very much as the absence of visuospatial attention, mm-hmm. whereas actually the absence of attention as a generalized uh, function, uh, we, we'd refer to that as inattentiveness. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so that's, a, that's a useful way. And of course, inattention as in not knowing where something is in space, that is very much a localized function, typically okay. localizing to the, to the, uh, the parietal lobe. Okay. And, and what are the other localized functions if inattention is one of them? Well, well all the rest, really. All, all the rest. So, so you can have memory function um, in the form of semantic memory. So remembering what concepts are, remembering what words mean. Uh, you can have uh, language, you know, the most iconic localized function of all. Um, you can have the really complex functions, so uh, those of strategizing, those of understanding what other humans uh, do, so theory of mind, uh, theory of other people's minds, um, that, that being the function that is particularly difficult uh, for people who have autistic spectrum disorder. Uh, these are more or less localized functions. Uh, and then importantly, I think, uh, as you touched on there, the interface on the one hand uh, between motor function and cognition and also between sensory function and cognition. So, so uh, the cognition of selecting the right movement to perform, and when that's impaired, we call it apraxia, and also the cognition of formulating the correct percept. And when that's impaired, we refer to it as agnosia. And I think in terms of uh, apraxia and agnosia, those, those are perhaps some of the more unfamiliar words, but, but they're actually helpful to think about because they're helpful in terms of mapping the cortex as a whole. Now, I, I don't know um, which 
bit of the brain um, you clocked first in terms of its uh, function. Um, but probably the easiest one to remember is the visual cortex, okay? So the eyes are at the front of your head and actually pathways in general within the nervous system, you just keep going, you know, those pathways on the uh, left side of your body end up on the right side of the brain and vice versa. So the pathways from the eyes goes right to the back of your head and so the occipital pole uh, of, of the cortex, that's where vision is uh, perceived, okay? Also, <clears throat> If you think about your body as being sort of at the bottom and your brain being at the top, so the fibers to and from the body go right to the top of the brain to the uh, paracentral gyruses, okay? And so, so we now know that we've got the visual cortex at the back and the uh, cortices for motor function in the body and sensory function in the body at the top. And actually the very uh, bottom of the body, your feet, at the very top, at the vertex of the brain. Okay, so if you know that, you can actually work out that in very general terms, in very general terms, uh, complex functions that are to do with perception, so visuospatial analysis, recognizing one object from another, understanding sounds, all of those, tend to be located in the association cortices towards the back, mm -hmm. parietal, temporoparietal structures, okay? So those between the visual cortex and the central sulcus. Uh, and, and those complex functions that are to do with action and movement are towards the front. And then, of course, the, the, the key one that's useful to remember in this regard is speech. So as I said, um, if you think about the motor strip, the feet and the legs are located at the top and the mouth is at the bottom. So the homunculus is, a, is, is like a little man that's kind of, um, he's, he's, he's sort of hooked his, his uh, knees on a climbing frame and is lying upside down. So the bit of association cortex that's next to the mouth part of the primary motor cortex is the bit that's responsible for language output, Broca's area. And likewise, um, the, the perceptual part of, of language, uh, so Wernicke's area is in the uh, posterior part of the superior temporal lobe and associated parietal areas that's just next to the primary auditory cortex. Mm -hmm. So, it's really difficult to know whether it's more helpful to tell people, you know, these are the four most important brain areas. Yeah? yeah. And you remember those. And maybe that's a bit easier than what I've just described going through the concepts. But I think if you have the confidence to retain those few points of logic, then that'll stand you in good stead. Yeah. Um, I suppose now it would be useful for students listening to uh, find out about how you actually assess these different domains of cognition. So what are the, the tools and tricks that you use in clinical practice? Okay, well, well there's a handful of routines. So uh, as I said, you know, when you do a motor examination, you do inspection 
palpation for tone, testing power, testing the reflexes and so on. So um, the routines in cognitive examination terms are a bit more complicated. Um, you know, you could, you could say that something as rudimentary as the Glasgow Coma Scale is a sort of cognitive assessment. Um, uh, I mean, you wouldn't go get very far just by using the Glasgow Coma Scale. Uh, and then there's a, there's, a, there's a whole range of, of, of others. Um, there's the 10 point mental test score. There's um, the, the six sit, which is sort of intended to be used in primary care. Um, there's, there's some tools for testing delirium specifically in the ITU context. So there's, there's something called the CAN ICU. Um, and then in, in terms of the best known names, I suppose still the best name best known name of all is the MMSC, the Mini Mental State Examination, which is a 30-point uh, test. Um, and, and actually that's more or less designed to pick up the sort of cognitive features that appear in Alzheimer's disease. The slight problem with it is that a small number of years ago, um, the, the rights to the MMSC were bought by a company. And actually, in theory, every time you use it, uh, you're, you're meant to pay a certain amount of money. So obviously, if you write a paper and you say that you've done the MMSC on 200 patients, it's absolutely clear that that payment has to be made. Now, you know, the extent to which in a random conversation you might use some of the not so sophisticated questions that arise in the MMSC, I mean, that, that's something that's outside the law. But the MMSC is there not used quite as widely as it was. And then there's two others that are used more widely now. So there's the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, the MOCA, which again is a 30-point uh, scale, and the Addenbrooke's Cognitive Examination, uh, which in its basic form is a 100-point uh, scale, um, but it also has a 30-point version. You know, there, there are some very simple things that you can do, um, getting someone to draw a clock face, um, getting someone to say as many words as they can in a minute, you know, as long as you choose a letter other than Q or something. So P, F, S, these are common letters to, to get people to try visual, uh, try verbal fluency with. So, so these are all some of the routines that, that you can use. Okay. And um, do you have any more sort of specific practical tips for students who will be hmm. taking cognitive okay. examination? So this is, this is, the, the improvisation part of it. Um, and it's always good to do a bit of ad-libbing, isn't it, when you're lecturing um, or doing stand-up comedy or even having a conversation with your friends. Um, and the same is true of doing a cognitive examination. So, um, so I think the improvisation really, again, comes from your general observation of the patient. So in the context of delirium, someone who is very inattentive, very distractible, actually you're not going to get much out of any routine cognitive test. You know, um, you, you're going to be at the floor in terms of performance. So, so your general observations on distractibility there are really crucial. At the other extreme, I think, you know, complex functions, social cognition, um, strategizing 
again, these are things that are really difficult to assess on a you know 30 point or even a hundred point test. So again, you're reliant on uh, ward staff to tell you how the patient is in interacting with them. You're reliant on your collateral history with the patient's relatives. Um, so so that's that's really important. Um, Another another aspect of going off piste, I think, is um, motor signs. So, so I mentioned to you that complex functions to do with uh, output, so planning, um, praxis, uh, these localize to the frontal lobes, and these these areas of the frontal lobe have connections with other brain areas, in particular the basal ganglia. So if you do an examination and you show basal ganglia impairment, bradykinesia, etc., involuntary movements, myoclonus, career, um, if you have objective evidence of an apraxia, that's helpful to supplement your cognitive examination. And then finally, I think um, there's a, it's worth talking about language testing. Uh, so language is a is an unusual one in that you know if, if you were in a if you were in in a neuropsychology lab with all the specialist equipment you know you might have um, plastic figures or um, plastic triangles or um, all manner of sort of auditory uh, things that you could use for cues you wouldn't be so reliant as we are on language, but, but day to day, when we do cognitive examination, we are using tools that are very critically dependent on language. Mm. So it's quite easy to use tools that um, tell us a lot about memory function, tell us quite a lot about visuospatial function, um, but they rely on language. And if language function is absent, uh, then, then you can't use those. And, and, and so you, you probably need to have a few more um, tricks up your sleeve on that. Um, and it's really basic, uh, I would say. So uh, one is kind of fluency in conversation. Mm -hmm. so, you, so you want people really, if they're talking normally uh, over a period of time, to be coming up with a few utterances that are um, uh, more than six words in a row. So that's kind of a normal fluent speech. Uh, you want people to be able to name a few um, a few kind of everyday objects that, that may be around them at their bedside. You want someone to be able to follow commands and preferably uh, you want them to be able to follow three stage commands. So um, touch your nose, uh, touch your nose with your left hand after pointing to the window. So some, some sort of comprehension of commands in that way. Quite an easy thing to test for uh, and, and useful actually in certain cognitive syndromes, so certain forms of Alzheimer's disease and certain forms of stroke disease is, is repetition. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, repetition uh, of sentences uh, is is actually impaired in, in certain forms of Alzheimer's disease um, and repetition of words and sentences can be impaired in, in what we call conduction aphasia, which is one of the vascular forms of, of aphasia. Mm -hmm. 
And I just want to mention um, Wernicke. I've mentioned Wernicke's encephalopathy earlier by, by talking about uh, damage to the mammillary body uh, leading to Korsakoff psychosis, but, but Wernicke's aphasia, uh, that, that's a good example, I think, of the general observation. Because, I don't know, once, once every couple of years in my practice attending a DGH for uh, neurology assessments, I get asked to see a person who is thought to be in an acute confusional state, but in fact, what they have is a, a Wernicke's aphasia. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you've, I think if you've got uh, a suspicion of that, then the way to test for it probably isn't to do more and more language tests because you'll get more and more gobbledygook out of it. Mm -hmm. and, and the way to, to clarify that is to use non-verbal cues. So trying to get someone to engage in an examination with them using non-verbal cues and noticing how much more uh, alert they are, how much more attentive they are, um, how much more coherent they are when you're trying to communicate with them with non-verbal cues. Uh, that's, an, that's a sort of an, an improvised or an off-piste way of testing for Wernicke's receptive type uh, aphasia. Hmm. Okay, I'd encourage students to listen to a, another podcast that you've recorded with us on an approach to the confused patient because I think in that you do. Oh yeah, okay, there's, there's a few crossovers there for sure, yeah. yeah. That's, one of the, uh, that's one of the D's that you mention as your uh, causes. Oh yeah, so I mentioned it as a dysphasia versus delirium and dementia I think. Excellent. Well, thanks very much um, for sharing your thoughts on that. I think that's a really, um, a really challenging topic to discuss and quite a conceptual topic as well. And I think the, do you have any final tips for students or any, any where they could go for more information, any recommended resources? There's, um, there's a nice book um, from my old boss, uh, John Hodges, uh, uh, Cognitive Assessment for Clinicians, mm -hmm. OUP, I think that's, that's, um, that's a good one and, and it's probably um, uh, a good resource in relation to my way of thinking about it because that, that will have influenced the way that I've uh, guided you in, in the course of this podcast. Um, I, I do think that just knowing some basic cortical anatomy, you know, a very basic anatomy book, that, that's always a good foundation uh, in neurology. I hope that um, people will have access to various um, copies of, of the, the mockers and the ACEs and the MMSC and just looking at them and seeing, yeah. seeing what they show. I think that that's a useful exercise as well. And I guess thinking why, looking at the, at the test and thinking what sorts of uh, pathologies would have difficulty with, with certain types? Yeah, well, particularly thinking about what, what site of pathology within the brain um, would uh, give impairments and you know if you have something like um serial sevens okay on on the mmsc so subtracting seven from a hundred and carrying on with that then obviously that involves uh, attention um it involves understanding language because that's the that's the test you have to be awake um so so that's uh that, that involves several tasks, 
Um, and then if, if you're drawing, then you have to understand the language, the command, you have to have praxis skills. Um, so, so a lot of these individual elements of these routines um, have several contributors yeah, yeah. within cognition that, that are relevant. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.